available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, the House of Commons Standing Committee on the Status of Women has been focusing on issues rural women are facing, specifically during the pandemic. Rural connectivity was discussed at a recent committee meeting. Saskatchewan farmer and rancher Adrian Ivey tells us about some of the challenges she has with internet and cell phone service and what she told the committee about how it impacts her family and farming operation. Saskatchewan farmer Jake Leguin has been writing a blog for a few years now. It was a way for him to share his thoughts on important topics like GMOs and the use of crop protection products. In his most recent post, he talked about his concern surrounding communication. He called it, Have We Forgotten How to Talk to Each Other? I talked to Jake about his blog and why he's concerned about how we're losing this ability to have conversations, especially when we don't agree. After the break, Adrian Ivey. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. With me is Saskatchewan rancher Adrian Ivey. You had an opportunity to speak to a committee. Let's just start just explaining which committee this was. Yeah, so it was the House of Commons Committee on the Status of Women that reached out to me and asked me to present to them specifically on the struggles of rural women and a lack of connectivity, especially during the pandemic and, you know, what kind of effect that has on our daily lives, which, as we all know, is pretty vast what that effect really is on a daily basis. I also found it interesting and I guess a little amusing that you started by apologizing because you were concerned about your internet connection when you spoke to the committee. Yeah, you know, I thought long and hard about uh, what I should be doing. Uh, Lots of times when I'm doing a presentation, I have to go and borrow a friend's office or go to a hotel room or, you know, for this I even considered renting um, office space, you know, those co-share type spaces in the city. And then I thought, well, why would I do that? Because maybe the best way to get my point across is to have my internet connection not be great and have them struggle to hear the words that I'm trying to convey. And sometimes that's the biggest example of just what struggles we're dealing with. And with it being a virtual event, when the voice doesn't match up with your lips, I think that also drives home the point, too. (laughs) Absolutely. And one of the examples that I used in describing how this affects us was just that struggle that sometimes we I have to drive a 200 kilometer round trip just to get to the city to email a large file. You know, in today's age of of connectivity, if you aren't used to poor rural internet, you have no idea that it can be a whole day process just to send a file, which was a little bit of an eye opener for them, for sure. Adrian, maybe just explain to us over the course of a regular day what you would be using the internet for and using your cell phones for with regards to the business of of farming. You have beef cows, you also grow crops. Maybe just explain some of the hurdles that would happen on any given day. Yeah, I think I think that's the, the biggest thing is that like like everybody knows 
any day on the ranch or the farm is so variable that it can that it can change wildly day for day to day to day. Some days we have no connectivity issues at all, and we're just happy to be quietly about doing our, our business techno, uh, technology free. But then other days are extremely technology dependent, whether it is something like uh, purchasing livestock or equipment on online on an auction sale. Well, a live auction sale on poor internet bandwidth is so painful. Um, it's an absolute day-to-day management of how much data we're using. And uh, more often than not, by the end of the month, we're out of data. So just a simple thing like online banking that really shouldn't be that difficult, but we're not even able to pay our bills online because we don't have the um, internet strength needed. Um, There are, I mean, it's been, I've been very vocal about and passionate about sharing our farm story with consumers and being open and transparent with the public about what we're doing uh, to raise the the food grown and raised across Canada. And, I struggle to do that most days. I don't, it's not that I don't want to be transparent, it's just that I can't literally upload the photo or video to show the people what we're actually doing. Um, And then it comes down to things like uh, the technology on the farm that we're trying to use and collecting that data and managing that data uh, to help us be the most sustainable that we can be and make the best decisions that we can for our farm. And sometimes that is so frustrating when you just can't upload it because you don't have the internet. So there's so many ways we use connectivity on the farm. Sometimes it goes back to just basic safety. If you are out in the field and have an accident or an issue, um, you need to be able to get a hold of somebody. You're literally miles away from another human being. But uh, it can be a little bit daunting when things go wrong and you're cut off from the world because you don't even have cellular service. How has this impacted your children? You have you have two kids. I think from what I understood from the presentation, four people in the household with four cell phones. So how does that affect uh, your children as far as their their school and play lives? Well, there's no doubt that the COVID pandemic has taken our internet and connectivity issues and just amplified them by a thousand percent. There have been lots of school assignments when the kids have been home, either in the first initial lockdown or else when we've been, you know, isolating for being close contacts or those kind of things that come up this year. And the kids can't can't physically do some of their online schoolwork because we don't have the bandwidth or the data left or whatever to play the video, to watch the to watch the lesson or to even have a simple Uh, classroom zoom meeting and when they can't connect that way it is so frustrating knowing that the only thing holding them back in their schooling on those days is literally internet infrastructure in Saskatchewan Uh, so that's been very frustrating I think the other thing too is that right now kids across Canada are getting the vast majority of their socialization online whether it is Snapchat or classroom Zoom meetings or whatever it is, 
online video gaming, unfortunately, we just don't have the bandwidth to do that. So it's really difficult watching our rural kids struggle to make the same social connections um, that other people might take for granted because internet is just something that's there for them. And then there's uh, and then there's just the constant. I worry very much about our rural kids not choosing a rural life, whether that's farming or working within agriculture. Um, or other entrepreneurial things that ha that happen across rural Canada, I worry that they're going to be frustrated that they don't have access to things like YouTube or video games or something as simple as Netflix, which, in the grand scheme of things, does not sound important. Those are don't feel like they should be the important things, but at the same time, our kids just want to feel normal and have access to all the same things that that urban kids have. And, of course, the cost associated with these services really can get out of hand when you start playing with data amounts. Yeah, absolutely. When we were, when I was preparing for this presentation and I was adding up what we spend on satellite internet, which is data capped, and our four different cell phone bills just for our family, which are maxed out on the data that they can have, just so that we can, you know, have access to as much as we possibly can. And we're paying over $600 a month as a family of four. And I think when an urban family hears that and it's, you know, they're paying maybe 100 bucks, and that includes their satellite or their uh, cable TV and, you know, a bunch of other things, $600 a month is a lot of cash flow 12 months of the year just to have inadequate levels of data. When you were speaking to the committee, uh, this was the, for the status of women, talking about um, rural issues of affecting women. Uh, one of the things that you brought up that I was, uh, I, you know, it was another, one of those light bulb moments where you talked about the opportunities that are out there for women for education. Something, again, when when you have adequate internet service that's something that you can easily sign up for a, a class or two taking university classes just some self-improvement but again that is uh, restrictive to rural women who have issues with uh, connectivity that is absolutely true and it's so frustrating because at this that is the benefit that we are seeing from the pandemic is all of these online resources and online webinars, courses, lectures, so many, so many tools are available to us right now to really improve our knowledge of agriculture, our, um, our own personal development. There's just so much that we could be doing if only you could connect um, and had the bandwidth to be able to hear the lecture and see the video and, and do all the things. So it's a double-edged sword of how much is available right now. I'm so glad to see so many opportunities, but I will have to admit I have taken part in almost none of them for two reasons. One, because it's such a frustrating experience when you when you try to log on and you, and you just can't get the information. And the other is that I never know when my kids are going to be home self-isolating again. I need to hoard the data that we have available. 
so that they can do as much online learning in the classroom as possible if they need it. And I think another point that was raised was with regards to access to virtual health and and just as important, virtual mental health care as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's another big benefit that we've seen through this pandemic is the ability for rural people to have health care and mental health care come to them rather than us having to drive, again, 100 kilometers each way just to get a simple test result or um, or connect with a uh, therapist or other resources like that. The tools are now there if only we could connect with them. So it's it's a step in the right direction, but it still doesn't actually it still isn't to a place where we can actually utilize these tools, which is, you know, so frustrating. It's certainly a topic that has gained a lot of traction, especially in the last couple of years. Adrian, do you feel that we're making any progress uh, to seeing some improvements? I think that the progress that's been made is just the that it's been a it's been a really large eye opener this year to policymakers and politicians just what a big issue this is. Um, that it's something that needs to be addressed. The issue that I'm seeing still is that nobody's quite sure yet how to address it. What is the best way to address that? How should uh, any projects be funded? Whose job should it be to fund them? Should it be federal, provincial, municipal, private? You know, there's just so much out there. But at the same time, there's some really great news stories out there about partnerships and collaboration and cost sharing that I think if we could take some of those projects and really shine a spotlight on them, there's something that we can all learn from that and hopefully figure out the best way to address this issue and create real change moving forward. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Great. Well, anytime I get to talk about this is a fist bump pump moment for me. So, And you can talk about it and we can hear you. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a nice change for this morning. Adrian Ivey is a rancher from eastern Saskatchewan, and she recently spoke to the House of Commons Standing Committee on the status of women focusing on rural connectivity. After the break, farmer Jake Legui talks about communication and why we're losing the ability to just talk without confrontation. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. I'm speaking with Saskatchewan farmer Jake Legui. We're going to be talking about communication today. So, uh, Jake, first of all, just tell us a little bit about your farming operation, where you're located and such. Yes, yeah, so our farm is located down between Wavered and Fillmore in southeast Saskatchewan, uh, kind of about an hour southeast of Regina. We grow a variety of crops, including canola, durum, wheat, uh, lentils, peas, flax, various other crops, kind of depending on the year. Uh, down in this area, we're kind of the jack of all trades, the master of none. We can pretty much grow whatever we want, um, which has its advantages and disadvantages. And uh, yeah, I farm with uh, a variety of family members, my older sister, um, my younger sister's husband, my, my dad, and uh, my wife, and a couple of young boys are on the farm as well. So, yeah, that's kind of a, a bit of an overview, I guess, of, of the operation down here. And um, you've uh, taken an interest in 
doing some board work. So you're currently on the Sask Wheat Board? Yeah, so I I was elected to the board of the Sask Wheat Development Commission in 2017. And uh, since then, I've taken on a few extra roles with the board. Um, I sit on the board for the Canadian Wheat Research Coalition. It's uh, sort of a uh, organization that puts Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba together in the in the uh, task of uh, variety development and all kinds of other research projects. And I also sit on the board for Cereals Canada, which is a national uh, sort of value chain organization that uh, works to for market access, market development, uh, and uh, market support for various uh, various buyers. Jake, we're going to talk about a, a specific blog uh, that you've written recently called Have We Forgotten How to Talk to Each Other? Uh, but before we get into that, tell me why it was and what inspired you to start writing a blog. So I started writing a blog actually back in uh, 2013. Um, initially, you know, I, I really used it as a bit of an outlet to to vent a little bit about uh, challenging weather that we were having some years before that. And it sort of evolved into, you know, as, as I started to and uh, talk with other people, it sort of evolved into a, a way to share a farm story and a way to try and have conversations about sometimes controversial and contentious subjects such as genetically modified seeds, uh, the use of crop protection products and fertilizer, and just modern agriculture in general and the benefits that I see from it. So over the years, those are some of the things that I've been writing about. Uh, I don't write as often as I used to. Uh, having some little kids at home takes some, uh, some of my time away. But I just, you know, there's a subject that, uh, that I really wanted to try and address. And it's not an easy one to talk about, but it just seems that we've become more divided as as a society and uh, you know I think that it's it's something that we need to really take a look at and see if are there ways that we can talk to each other in a way where we can actually have a conversation instead of having an argument and, or, or just not talking at all um, so that's what I really wanted to write about and that's what this particular blog piece is about you have been involved with family members on the farm and your board work. What have you learned about our ability to just talk to each other? Is it something that's becoming a lost art? To a certain degree, I think so. Um, I think social media is uh, is partially to blame in this, and and the reason why is because when you go on, you know, Facebook or or Twitter, you, you tend to follow like-minded people. And even if you don't, in the case of, you know, something like Facebook, it, it does sort of sort through and, and show you things that, you know, the algorithms sort of think that you're going to be interested in, which often can be political. So you might have a whole host of friends and family on, on a platform like that that don't think the same way as you, but you may not ever see what they have to say. So I believe you sort of end up in a little bit of an echo chamber, and after a while, you start to believe that nobody could possibly think on the other side of, of the issue. And I think that that really diminishes your ability to 
have empathy for the people on the other side and realize that generally speaking, the people that disagree with are human beings that probably have a reason for looking at the world the way that they do. And the only way, if you think that their worldview is, is incorrect or flawed, the only way to try and change that is to have a conversation, not an argument, which seems to be the, the way that these things tend to go, particularly on, on Twitter, which can be, you know, pretty nasty sometimes. I mean, you only have a limited amount of words that you can use, so it's hard to have a lot of context in, uh, you know, in a, in a dialogue on a platform like that. I find it interesting uh, that, well, first of all, that you've been involved with boards, and so have I, and I've had the privilege of uh, having excellent chairs of these boards who manage to get everyone to participate. Everyone has a chance to have their say, but it's always conducted in a very respectful manner. Do you find that in a situation where when you're at a board table, Difficult conversations are going on, but do you find in that environment that is a good way of learning how to communicate with each other and talk to each other while having very different opinions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's a that's a critical role that the chair plays in trying to, you know, weave that balance of, of getting everybody to share their own sort of uh, perspective on an issue. And I mean, it, if, if the board is sort of single-minded in, in the that it is an issue, then, I mean, there's not much point in having a board at all, right? I mean, you want to have lots of different perspectives and ideas, and, and you want people to be able to share them. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my exposure to, uh, to some of these boards, you, you get people from all kinds of different backgrounds and, and uh, you know, different ways of viewing things, and, and it does kind of help you see, okay, you know, this is the only way to look at this issue. You know, maybe I do need to think about the other side of this. And it, it just, it, it may not change your mind, but it does have a way of softening your stance a little bit. You uh, mentioned in your blog, your dad in particular, and having a good friend who kind of come from, come into life with some different perspectives. Maybe share that. I think that's that gives a really good example of, of what we're talking about today. So, you know, my dad is, you know, always had lots of friends from different backgrounds and everything, but one that always kind of stood out to me is, uh, is a good friend of his that has worked, you know, uh, a union job for his whole career and, and uh, you know, tended to vote one way and dad would tend to vote the other way, as you can imagine. And, you know, I would often be around while they're having discussions, right? Because, I mean, inevitably at some point you kind of get drawn into those political discussions, right? It, it just has a way of coming up. But I just thought it was it was always so good the way that they did that. You know, they could have a discussion about it. Yeah, it might get a little bit heated from time to time, but when it was over, it was over. And they just kind of went back to chatting about something else or being friends. And, and it, never, it never hurt their relationship. And I just think that that's so important because both of them were able to see the other side and just understand that, yeah, that's a human being over there. And, you know... I, I need to understand why he feels that way. And when you do, again, it's not that it's going to change your mind or your outlook on things, but it's just, it just has a way of softening it a little bit. And I think that we're just we're missing that out of the society. And I think being locked down in this pandemic and everything has probably accelerated that because, like I mentioned before, 
social media isn't a very good place for these sorts of discussions to happen, if they happen at all. So I think we're really missing that more than ever. So face-to-face obviously makes a big difference then. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm active on social media. I've got you know, lots of kinds of hours on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everything else. There are wonderful resources for lots of things, but that is one place where they really aren't a very effective medium is, is trying to have discussions about difficult issues. They just don't work very well for that. I've had situations where, you know, I've gotten in arguments on Twitter when I know that if I was sitting down with that person, you know, somewhere else in person, it would have gone a lot differently. Jake, what is your advice to people moving forward? We will eventually get back to somewhat of a normal situation once this uh, pandemic is uh, is under control. What kind of message uh, did you want to share in your blog and you'd like to share now about uh, communication and how we talk to each other? I would say just be a little bit forgiving. When you see something, um, someone you might know or even someone you don't, on a social media platform, something that they've said that really strikes a nerve with you. You don't know the context and, and why they're saying what they're saying. And just give them a chance and listen first. And then decide whether, you know, whether that's a position that you still strongly disagree with. And then if you do, once that person feels listened to, they'll be a lot more receptive to listening to you. It, it, it has to go both ways. Otherwise, they get defensive, you get defensive, you plant your feet, and the conversation is over. And you might as well just yell at the wall for all that it's going to be worth at that point. You have to be able to have a conversation. Farmer and Sask Wheat Director Jake Legui. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of March 15, 2021. The Federal Minister of Agriculture said Canada is an important step closer to being recognized as a negligible risk country for bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Canada has been a controlled risk country for BSE since 2007. One of the criteria for the change is for Canada to show that infected domestic animals were born more than 11 years prior. The country's last case was in 2015 in a cow born in 2009. Delegates are to vote on Canada's application at the organization's next World Assembly at the end of May. Economic challenges caused by COVID-19 did not impact farmland values last year. Farm Credit Canada's annual farmland values report said that they rose 5.4% both on a national basis and in Saskatchewan. Those numbers are down only slightly from the previous year. FCC Chief Economist J.P. Gervais said B.C. had the largest rise among the provinces at 8%. Alberta was 6% and Manitoba was 3.6%. Seeded wheat acreage could drop in Canada and the U.S., while production in the Black Sea region will be higher. Markets farm analyst Bruce Burnett said there is strong competition for acres in Canada and especially the United States. He said higher cash bids for wheat should help retain some of those acres. Part of the issue is that high-protein wheat continues to be undervalued. Burnett said Canadian wheat exports are about 2.5 million ahead of last year's pace. Ending stocks for Canadian canola and barley will be very low heading into the 2021-22 crop year. Canola exports are going to top 10 million tons, while 
barley reached 3.6 million tonnes, a level not seen since the Canadian wheat board days of the 1990s. Analyst Mike Jubinville said even though the daily markets have been volatile, there is no sign yet that old crop canola has stopped moving higher, and there isn't much unpriced canola remaining on farm. The federal agriculture minister provided some clarity on temporary worker rules. Marie-Claude Bebo said after March 21st, asymptomatic workers would be able to travel directly to their place of quarantine after getting a COVID-19 test at the airport and provided they travel by private transportation. Workers who need to take public transport will be required to stay at a government-approved location while they wait the results of a COVID-19 test. Bebo said they will also be conducting more in-depth inspections of employees. The Agriculture Carbon Alliance added some new members as the industry stands together and works collaboratively on environment issues. The Canadian Forage and Grassland Association, the National Sheep Network, the National Cattle Feeders Association and the Dairy Farmers of Canada joined the group. The ACA was formed to represent farmers and ranchers on carbon pricing and now has 14 members. The Port of Churchill is going through an ownership transition. One North community and Indigenous partners will assume 100% ownership of the port, the Hudson Bay Rail Line and the Churchill Marine Tank Farm. The local group was part of the Arctic Gateway Group, established in 2018. AGT Food and Ingredients and Fairfax Financial were part of that group. One North has approached federal and provincial governments to assist with permanent infrastructure repairs. Churchill provides EGT and other potential shippers with a shorter route to many overseas markets compared to the port of Thunder Bay. An international team successfully completed decoding the genome of rye. Researchers at the University of Saskatchewan and in Germany accomplished the task despite rye's very large size and complexity. In Canada, most rye is grown in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. USAS professor Curtis Posniak said rye is one of the most cold-tolerant cereal crops and can survive the harshest winters typical of the Canadian prairies. He says the genome sequence of rye points to important genes that could be used to enhance the cold tolerance of other crops, including wheat. And farmers and scientists will work together on a new carbon reduction program. Regional collaboration hubs will be created through Agricultural Climate Solutions. There are four collaboration hubs in four provinces, but the only one in the West is in Manitoba. Applications will be accepted in the fall and includes not-for-profits such as producer organizations. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarland for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarland and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.